Thank you all for tuning into this episode of Last Born in the Wilderness. If you'd like to find out more about this project, you can go to the podcast website, lastborninthewilderness.com. Everything you need to know about this podcast can be found at that site. You can find links to the Patreon page, the one-time donation page, contact information, the YouTube page. Everything is there, as well as all of the different platforms that this podcast is now on. I have it on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. I just got it on Google Play and Stitcher very recently, so if those are your preferred uh, podcast streaming sites, feel free to subscribe to this podcast on that. I would also like to ask those that are interested if you would like to support this podcast. Of course, you don't have to do this podcast. It's free. But if you enjoy what I'm doing and you like what you hear, consider supporting my work at the podcast Patreon page. That is at patreon.com slash lastborninthewilderness. Uh, By going to that site, you can make very small monthly contributions to the production of this podcast, and you can gain early access to the content of these episodes a week in advance. And to those that are our contributors to this podcast who are patrons, I thank you for your contributions. I know you don't have to do this. You do this because you choose to, and that means a great deal to me. Without any further delay, on with the episode. Thank you. Our guest for this episode is David O'Hara. David is a professor of philosophy and classics at Augustana University and the author of the book Downstream, Reflections on Brook Trout, Fly Fishing, and the Waters of Appalachia. David teaches a variety of courses on philosophy, classics, religion, and environmental ethics. And not long before the recording of this episode, 
David had just gotten back from a trip from Central America where he teaches an in-depth course on reef ecology. This is my second episode with David, and as with the first episode I recorded with him, uh, conversing with David is always a delight and a pleasure. In this episode, we discuss his trip to Central America, and we also talk about the recent archaeological discovery of a vast Mayan metropolis that, quote, at its peak some 1,500 years ago, covered an area about twice the size of medieval England, with an estimated population of around 5 million. David goes over the cutting-edge technology that is now being used to discover these until very recently hidden ruins of an ancient Mayan civilization, and what we can learn from these discoveries in regards to our own civilization. In this conversation, we also get into the ethics of artificial intelligence and robotics and the corporate control of the development of computer technology and the implications this has on how information is disseminated through our society. David discusses some of the underlying issues of relying on algorithms and computer learning um, in making big decisions for us, and how this kind of thinking can lead to unintended outcomes and unintended consequences. We get into the details of this in this conversation. I don't want to give too much away. I think David does a much better job than I can of of going over this information. This is a wide-ranging conversation, and while all of the different threads do not seem to be a part of the bigger picture. I think that once we get through this conversation, um, all the pieces come together. So I thank David for for doing this again. I love talking to David. You know, I, I talk to him through social media and um, and all that. So so whenever I get a chance to to have a conversation with him and record a podcast, I'm always very excited. So. I thank David for his time, and um, and I thank you all for listening to this episode. Um, you were just recently in South America, Central America, is that right? Central America, Central yeah. America. Where did you go, and, and what were you doing down there? I teach a tropical ecology class in Guatemala and Belize, so I spend two out of every three Januaries in those two countries. Mm, okay. And you take a bunch of students with you, is that right? Yeah, that's right. I take uh, usually about 10 or 12 of my students from Augustana University down there. Okay. And then we, we work together with a an indigenous uh, organization called BIOITZA, B-I-O-I-T-Z-A, uh, which is, um, I, I spell it out so that you know, the BIO starts, stands for like biology or life and ITZA for the ITZA Maya people. Mm. So there's there's a small indigenous uh, group there that's been working to preserve uh, the forest and their language and their culture and traditions. Oh, right. Well, that's that's really important work, isn't it? I mean, I would say. Yeah, it it feels like work that's really worthwhile anyway. Mm hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, actually, there was a story that popped up recently and I thought of you and you had commented on it, but it was about um, how there was this using new technology that has been developed for this, um, there was a huge archaeological find in, I think it was Guatemala. Yeah. Um, that's... Yeah. I, I was just reading a BBC article and I just wanted to get your thoughts on it. I could, I'm going to quote a little bit of it and then just ask you what your ideas and thoughts are on this subject. But um, sure. <clears throat> researchers have found more than 60,000 hidden Maya ruins in Guatemala in a major archaeological breakthrough. 
Uh, laser technology was used to survey digitally beneath the forest canopy, revealing houses, palaces, elevated highways, and defensive fortifications. Yep. The landscape uh, near already known Maya cities is thought to have been home to millions more people than other research had previously suggested. And the researchers mapped over 810 square miles. Um, and archaeologists, belie- archaeologists believe the cutting-edge technology will change the way the world will see the Maya civilization. So, I mean, I've been seeing this story popping up on a few different sites, and um, it's really quite a remarkable thing. I think I just see over and over again there's these new uh, archaeological digs. These sites are using new technology, satellite technology. They're using all these different methods to kind of figure out that there's been really highly advanced civilizations that have existed and they've been under our nose the entire time. We haven't noticed them, particularly in, in uh, a very um, biodiverse region, like in South and Central America, where, you know, within, I don't even know how many decades, entire cities can just be covered in a forest. Um, and it, I think that's pretty remarkable in and of itself that, that it could ha- that could all of our so-called achievements can just disappear pretty quickly <laughs> in yeah. that you know um but there was something that you said and it was online about how people are remark remarking on how amazing it is that this civilization existed and that it was as advanced and as complex as it was but something that they've uh remarked on is is how there's a reason the civilization isn't occupied by people anymore i mean this was long before columbia columbus ever visited the american continents America, the Americas, excuse me. He didn't even come to the continent. He just landed on a few islands. But um, uh, I just wanted to get your thoughts on that. Like, what what are your... Because uh, um, you were commenting on how this should really just be a lesson on how once humans kind of impose themselves so much on the land, it eventually will not support them any longer. Um there's kind of certain thresholds that are pushed, uh, are, are passed, and, and then something happens, and before long, the, the civilization sort of begins to go into decline. I don't know if you had any thoughts or comments on that. Yeah, so I'll tell you, the, the place where I go to in Guatemala is the northern part of Guatemala. It's called the Peten Department, mm-hmm. uh, P-E-T-E-N. It's, mm-hmm. uh, it makes up about a third of the landmass of Guatemala, and until fairly recently, most of the Paten was pretty heavily forested. Just the, the southern, uh, just a little bit of the southern part wasn't forested. Um, the, during the Civil War, which lasted from the early 1960s until 1996, uh, there was very little activity, very little uh, development up there. Uh, since then, the, uh, the population of the Paten Department has increased from, from the south moving north. And so more and more of it is getting deforested uh, as people look for land to farm. Um, this is one of those things where it's easy to understand why people are moving there. They need land. Uh, if you, if I were living in Guatemala and I needed some place to grow food for my children, uh, this has been the case in Guatemala for a long time, I would do the same. I would find any place where I could grow food and I would just go and do it. Uh, the problem is that the the soil doesn't last very long. In, a, in, in tropical forests, the, uh, the organic matter that we think of as being so rich far in the north, it tends to be pretty thin. Uh, one way of thinking about this is to think about uh, most of the biomass of a tropical forest is in motion. 
It might be the, the slow motion of plants, which is where most of it is, or the fast motion of insects and animals. But it's all alive, or, or much of it is alive. Things don't tend to last very long before they start to decompose and then become new life in, mm-hmm. in forests. So when you, if you were to look at the Paten uh, with LIDAR, which is the technology that they've been using uh, to uh, sort of to, to examine the archaeological sites, you can see that the Paten and much of the Yucatan, in fact, was, was covered with Maya cities, Maya, Maya buildings. Um, these are buildings made of uh, stone mostly, or you can see where the, the earth was mounded up in order to make platforms of various kinds. Mm-hmm. Anything made of wood, of course, has decomposed uh, over the centuries. It doesn't take too long for wood to decompose in, a, in the tropics. But uh, you can see that there was a really big population there, much larger than we thought earlier. Um, there's a, a scientist by the name of Mark Brenner, uh, teaches in Florida. And a few years ago, Mark Brenner went down to one of the lakes in the Paten. Lake Paten Itza is the name of it. It's a very deep lake. And he did some, um, some paleolimnological studies. So, uh, what this means is going down and drilling core samples out of the, the bottom of the lake. Mm-hmm. What's really interesting about that is that, um, most of the organic matter that falls on a lake is going to get consumed. You know, leaves that fall in will get consumed by insects. Uh, insects that fall in can get consumed by fish and so on. Fish get consumed by bacteria. But there's uh, one thing that doesn't get consumed by much of anything, and that's pollen. Strangely enough, there's not a lot in nature that can easily consume pollen. So when the pollen from trees lands on the surface of a lake, it sinks down and it forms a new layer on the bottom of the lake. It's almost like the rings in a tree. Mm-hmm. So if you're doing paleolimnology, you can, you can take a core sample out of the bottom of a lake, the, you know, the, the sediment at the bottom of a lake, and you can see layer upon layer of the history of the forest around that lake. You can see, for instance, if there's a, abundant trees, you'll see a fairly thick layer of pollen. Uh, and this can go back centuries. Uh, it, it, it'll just lie there, un, uh, not decomposed. Uh, and it, of course, if there's a deforestation, you'll see a very thin layer of pollen or no pollen at all. Uh, one of Brenner's studies that he did, oh, a decade or so ago, showed that uh, just before the population of the Paten plummeted uh, roughly a thousand years ago, just before that, the place was deforested. And you can do a couple of other studies. It's not just the pollen, but you can also see... Uh, the, there's some microorganisms that will also leave uh, uh, traces uh, of their their carapaces behind, for instance. So you can tell something about how their populations did, and you can extrapolate and figure some, something about temperature. I'll make this uh, sort of give you the, the thumbnail sketch. What we can see is that just before the population of the Paten and of the Yucatan plummeted, the place was deforested, the rain stopped falling, and the temperature went up. And what's especially interesting is the order in which that happened. Uh, and, and you can see this in the, uh, in the layers of the soil. The deforestation came first, as near as we can tell. And when the deforestation came, that changed the albedo of the soil, you know, changed the, the color of the ground. It changed the way that the, sun, the sunlight reflected off of the ground. 
and it created a microclimate change, uh, as near as we can tell. That microclimate change then affects whether or not the rain falls, whether uh, whether it gets cool enough to condense the, um, the, the the water out of the air, for instance. And what followed in a matter of just a few years, three, four, five years perhaps, uh, was severe drought, severe enough to kill perhaps the majority of the population. Mm. So, it, I mean, this is not climate change on the global scale. This is climate change in the regional scale. But we're right. talking about much of the Yucatan Peninsula. <clears throat> that's that's amazing because I didn't know that the climate could be so affected in a in like a region like that. I didn't know that. I mean, it's kind of an obvious thing, obviously, but obvious thing, obviously. Um, but <laughs> but I guess when I research climate change or I, or it's discussed now it's viewed in the global sense right when we talk about climate change we think about the arctic we think about the antarctic greenland we think about what's happening all over the world you know and, and all the various things that come about as a result of it but yeah. but i think that there's a lesson in there i mean a pretty 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 big one there um and i and i wish that the articles that that were talking about this i mean it's it it's it sort of i want to say it fetishizes but it definitely loves the idea that they're able to do this now. And I think it's really great too, that they're able to use this technology to find all of these archeological sites, mm-hmm. but to realize that human beings have done, have gone into, have had this pattern of building a civilization, building complex societies. And then it starts to, I guess, extract all the resources that it's able to extract. It, it deprives this, uh, the, the land base of the things that it needs in order to replenish itself and then it starts to collapse, and it even affects the local climate, as you said. Yeah. That that's that's remarkable. I wish that was talked about more with this piece, you know, um, and how this is really kind of an example of what human beings can do on the local level as well as on the global level. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, I, I suppose part of the problem is we have, in some ways, uh, a, a fairly small data set. You, you know, we. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've only been doing this kind of science for a couple of centuries. Uh, uh, and so we've only really been aware of what's happening on a global scale for a very short period of human history. Mm, uh, yeah. I, I don't mean that we can't read backwards into history, but I mean, we've only been aware of being able to read backwards into human history for for a short while. So it's hard to know. Um, it's, it's not this isn't one of those times when we can look back at our ancestors and see what they did to solve the problem very easily. We can uh, but we can apparently look back at our ancestors and see what they did to cause at least local problems. Right. Yeah. And you, you see the effects of this uh, at the poles much more dramatically than you see it at, in the tropics, uh, in part because there is such biodiversity in the tropics. If a species vanishes in the tropics. Uh, you might see a, a much smaller percentage of the species vanishing, whereas at the poles, uh, many of the mammals, for instance, are much larger. There's, they're fewer in number, and uh, it's the effects on them in terms of the effects on their population is much more dramatic. It's easier for us to see. But the effects are happening all over the world right now. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I, and I, and I talk – I've actually had uh, maybe – I don't know, maybe three guests recently that I've talked to about climate change. And so I don't necessarily need to rehash sure. any of the things that have been said, but um, it's something I'm very 
concerned about and something I, I talk a great deal about. Um, but there was another topic that I really wanted to, to originally what I wanted to talk to you about um, was you've commented on robotics and mm-hmm. ethics and and as someone who you, you're a professor of uh, philosophy and, and the class and classics, excuse me. Yeah. Um, and for you, so for you to talk about um, robotics and the developments that are uh, emerging out of the, um, I'm trying to say here, like these really high tech corporations that are yeah. cre- creating artificial intelligence or they're creating algorithms that are able to, to, to learn, <clears throat> excuse me, able to learn in, in ways that have never been a, uh, possible before for a computer to do. Um, you've, you've, you've kind of commented on it and, and something that, that you seem to be concerned about is it, it's, it's one thing to want to have artificial intelligence, you know, really advanced robotics, whatever it is, right? But you, the thing that I think that you're very concerned about is who's in control of this technology and who's this technology ultimately going to serve. Yeah. And if you could get into that a bit, like what are your general concerns and maybe we can get into some of the details of that. Sure. Well, let me uh, start off by saying that uh, I've grown up around computers. Uh, You know, I grew up in an IBM community. My dad was an IBM and NASA engineer. Um, I grew up learning how to, uh, to use computers and to code in a, bunch of different languages when I was, uh, you know, in the kid in the, in the early eighties. Uh, I'm not particularly afraid of computers. I'm not worried that, you know, Skynet's about to happen or that, uh, our right. robot overlords are about to take over. I think the thing that concerns me more is that, um, will some, that I, I see people wanting computers to make decisions for us as though the computers could somehow do that in a neutral way, uh, uh, which is a little bit like looking at a calculator on your desk and wanting it to balance your checkbook for you. Mm, you know, right. the, the, the calculator is a tool. Um, the results that you'll get out of it will depend very much upon your learning how to use it and apply that tool well. And this is true, I think, of any kind of technology that we've got. So a knife, for instance, a knife is a really simple piece of technology. We've had it for tens of thousands of years. And a knife on its own is not good or bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so much depends upon the intentions that we bring to it and what we expect from it. So a knife that's pulled upon you uh, in a subway or in a dark alley, uh, you know, in some place where you have no other defense and somebody holds it against you as a, a weapon, this is a bad use of a knife. Mm-hmm. Uh, but a knife in the hands of a surgeon might be the very thing that saves your life. So the knife alone is not enough. Now, what, what we need then is some set of ethical principles that will guide us in the use of the knife. Uh, and not just ethical principles, but good character. We need to be the kinds of people who have uh, spent time using the tools and talking together about the tools and deciding how we'll use the tools and not just um, be the tools of others. Mm, right. So, you know, when I think about um, Facebook, for instance, uh, Facebook sometimes will, uh, the, the corporation will offer announcements like they're going to help us to sort out uh, false news from true news or accurate news. That all sounds great. You know, that in, in terms of corporate social responsibility, if Facebook feels an obligation 
to help us to distinguish between uh, false news and and accurate news. That's wonderful. The bad thing is if somebody will say, therefore, I don't have to think about discerning the true from the false, the the helpful from the unhelpful, the malicious from the uh, from the the, the well-intended. If Facebook wants to do that, I'd like to know what are the tools that they plan to use? What are the algorithms that they wish to use in order to distinguish between good news and bad news, between, uh, you know, helpful news and unhelpful news or between accurate accounts and inaccurate accounts of events? If Facebook thinks that you can do this simply by um, some of the what's become uh, already standard means of machine learning, I think that they're gravely mistaken and we would be mistaken to follow them. Uh, A lot of what has been done with machine learning has been asking machines to watch the decisions that other people make and then to assume that whatever decisions people make on a regular basis are probably the best decisions. And they may be the safest decisions, but that's not always the most accurate or the best, the morally or ethically best. So an example would be if you want to teach a car to drive itself, one thing you could do is you could just tell it anytime you see a red octagon with the letters STOP, then you should come to a a full halt before you pass that sign. Right. Another way that you could do it, and this is something that a number of companies have been pursuing uh, that's uh, faster and oftentimes more accurate, is put a camera in front of a car, uh, in, in, fr- in fact, and put it in front of uh, on the dashboard of, say, thousands of cars, and let lo- the, a computer observe lots and lots of people driving. And eventually the computer will notice that people stop not only when they see those red octagons, but also when they see a child about to cross the street or when they see bicyclists or when they see a red a stoplight rather than a green stoplight, uh, et cetera. You know, the, it'll start right. to a whole bunch of things. And in that case, it's actually helpful to have the machine notice what human beings do and imitate it. Except it might also be that in some places, people don't stop for stop signs. Hmm. So, so for instance, in some very high crime areas around the world, uh, it can be dangerous to stop for a stop sign. If you stop for the stop sign, uh, you actually put yourself in some peril because stopping your car makes you more vulnerable to people who might be outside the car and wishing to rob you. Mm. So what if machines are watching all around the world and have no sense of context, and they notice that, say, 75% of the time we stop at octagons, but 25% of the time we don't? Are we inviting cars now in any circumstance to stop three of out of four times, or are we doing something else to help to train them. And here I think it, this requires a lot more um, ethical decision-making and cultural and contextual decision-making on the part of the human beings who are programming those cars. Right. Well, that makes a, well, that definitely makes a great deal of sense. Um, so <clears throat> I think, though, that the, the question also is, you know, what are the intentions behind those that are, make, that are making these decisions, right? So yeah. You know, um, remember there was this really interesting interview that Elon Musk uh, had, and he was—I think he was half joking, but I don't think he really was. Where he's like, "I want—we want to colonize Mars. We want to send people and start living on Mars." And they were asking, "Well, how is that possible? It's not really a very livable planet for human beings. You can't just go there and, and expect to live there." He's like, "Well, 
we have an idea where we could just blow up a nuclear bomb, uh, I think, on the North Pole, and it would just change the whole climate, and we could then work with it then. I, what I find is that the intention, of course, is to provide uh, a way to make this planet livable, but just yeah. like with a lot of these technologies um, and a lot of these decisions that are being made by a couple people that have enormous amount of wealth and power behind them, right. um, they can make decisions that have horribly unintended consequences. Because mm-hmm. like, you go to a planet like Mars, nothing really is living on it as far as we can tell, and you drop a nuclear bomb on it and expect everything to kind of work in your favor. I imagine there's a whole bunch of unintended uh, consequences to doing something like that. And I imagine the same thing would be for, say, here's another uh, totally very different thing, but but sort of in the same vein. Um, recently, Facebook made this decision that um, they were changing their algorithms so that you got more... Uh, you instead of seeing on your timeline, you wouldn't see all the new sites and all the things that you normally would follow. Mm-hmm. You would just start seeing things from your family or from whatever, right? And this was their way to deal with this fake news um, outrage that people are, are on about. Yeah. Um, because I think what happened is that Facebook realized, or Mark Zuckerberg, whoever it was, they were accused of allowing certain types of um, information to spread across Facebook that ultimately they say led to the election of Donald Trump or something like that, right? Yeah. So of course they're like backpedaling completely and they're undermining a lot of different news sources because it doesn't fit into their idea of what um, the news is, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that ultimately what I, I sense is that the problem is that once these large projects like Facebook or whatever it is, um, once they start kind of altering the societies that they're in, there there's so many unintended consequences that come from that. Right. And and I, I don't even know how you could even rein in these corporations at this point. Do you think that there's a way to do that? I mean, I feel like at this point in time, a lot of things are being deregulated. Um and and that code that that that's in the EPA. That's also um, things are being sold off, like uh, the national parks, for instance, as well. It's just being kind of stripped and sold away. I feel like at this point in our this phase, speaking of the collapse of civilizations, you know, at the beginning of this thing, it seems that this is the phase that we've entered, where it's not about um, reining in any of these problems anymore. It's a matter of just sort of letting whoever do whatever they want with it. So I, I, I don't know. I mean, is there a way out of this conundrum that we've gotten ourselves into regarding how powerful these corporations are um, with these technologies? Well, I wish that I had some sort of uh, simple solution for you. Um, yeah. I, I, I really don't. Um, one of the questions that is perhaps uh, let me approach the, try to approach this a little bit tangentially. One of the questions that sometimes I see students uh, grappling with uh, is the question of whether or not there will be a job for them when they graduate or in the near future if, in fact, we are uh, making machines that can do many of the jobs that are done right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know the answer to that question. Uh, certainly, there are plenty of jobs that have been replaced by machines. Many of the bank-telling jobs have been done done away with by uh, automated teller machines. 
uh, and you know there are a number of other places where we've now had machines that have been able to do things that others could do. I'm not particularly worried about that right now, but I do think that when we give people education, we should be doing more than simply trying to train them for some trade. Mm. I do think that we should all be trying to, uh, to, to get training to do particular things. I think it's good to learn to work with our hands. I think it's good for us to learn how to, uh, to make things, uh, to produce our own food and so on. But most of us are not going to become carpenters or potters or, uh, or engineers or farmers. Um, I just think that it's important for us to learn more than we think that we'll need in order to perform some job. Mm. So when we talk about uh, the power of a few uh, wealthy people, a few powerful people, or a few wealthy and powerful corporations, the same might be true. Um, part of what makes other people wealthy and powerful is when we give away wealth and power. Mm. Uh, it's not always the case that we choose to give away the wealth and power or that we do so uh, intentionally in order to make somebody wealthy and powerful, but uh, we pay certain people a tremendous amount of money because we appreciate what we get from them. I mean, you and I both use Facebook. Uh, we listen to music. We uh, watch movies and watch athletic events. And the artists and performers and the people who provide these services, we consider what they offer to us to be worth at least some of our uh, our money. But we live in such an age that uh, the the um, the wealth can be amplified very quickly, uh, the power, the ability to spread music or news can be amplified very quickly, and I think this calls for um, a deepening of wisdom on our part that each one of us should be engaged not just in professional training, but each of us should be learning history and poetry and culture. Each of us should be learning more tools than we think that we'll ever need uh, so that we have those tools at our disposal in order to distinguish between fake news and real news, for instance, and in order to make sure that we simply don't lazily abdicate the important ethical decision-making to other people and to corporations. Yeah. Some of those decisions are just going to be made. I mean, there, right now, no one has decided to turn the moon into advertising, for instance. But what would prevent uh, a corporation from spray painting the moon? Right now, it's, the, it's a matter of cost. Uh, but what if you could send uh, robotic solar-powered bulldozers to the moon to start to carve a corporate logo on the moon, something like that? Mm -hmm. I mean... Yeah. It, it it's within the realm of possibilities. Silly. But right now, uh, who owns the moon? Does anybody have a legal right to stop somebody else from doing that? Mm, yeah. No, not really. And and what is what law governs Mars similarly? So when I talk to my students about uh, about environmental policy, law and ethics, for instance, I want to look at some of the local uh, small scale on earth situations in order to develop tools that we could apply to new situations. When I take my students to Guatemala and we're looking at the tropical forest or we're looking at the reef, we're looking at something that's kind of like where we live, but removed enough that we can learn some rules and some tools that we can then bring back home. Uh, there's a, a lot of, even the places where you and I live that are not strictly regulated. Who owns the minerals a thousand miles under where you live. 
right now, no one tries to go down that far mm -hmm. uh, because there's much easier access to other minerals. Who owns the sky? Uh, who owns the ocean to, uh, 201 miles off of our coast? Uh, there's, you know, there's uh, United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea says that for 200 miles out from any nation, uh, there's an exclusive, exclusive economic zone. So mm -hmm. that, that nation has some control of that. But 201 miles, who owns that? And there we enter into some interesting, interesting conversations. We, we can talk about conventions. We can talk about treaties and agreements, but there's an awful lot of the ocean that simply isn't owned by anybody and where there is, uh, there's no clear and decisive uh, jurisdiction or law that covers it. Right. So if that's true for the surface of our planet or for what's just above or below the surface of, of our planet, it's even more so the case for what lies beyond the planet, the moon, Mars, etc. Yeah. I, I, I think, um, I don't know, I was thinking of the film uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey where, yeah. you know, in the, was it made in the mid-60s, Stanley Kubrick, you know, this idea yep. that we're going to have a space station and we can go to the moon and there's going to be all of this activity. But that was all done through um, NASA or maybe the, the Russian equivalent of that. Um, but now I feel like the most likely uh, entity to maybe first start colonizing another planet or the moon is a large corporation, you know, which has maybe as much wealth, uh, more wealth than many of the nations on this planet. Yeah. Um, and I think that that radically maybe reshapes our understanding of what the future is going to look like in regards to that. Mm -hmm. And, and, um, and because it's a profit motive, I think that that's going to shape the ethics of, of how, say, robotics develops or how we choose to explore the universe if we ever get that far. And I, I'm concerned about that because we're already seeing how powerful, say, we're talking about Facebook, um, how much of an influence that they have had on, on information and how information is dis disseminated throughout our society. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember actually reading about I think it was actually um, Mark Zuckerberg was at some conference of some kind and Barack Obama was there and actually Barack Obama pulled him aside and like had a conversation with him. And ever since that conversation, that's the whole, that's where the whole, like, we're going to change the news feed and we're going to change how, um, how people uh, access information on Facebook. Because I think what happened is that the democratic party and the establishment had realized maybe a little too late that what they had assumed was going to happen in the 2016 election didn't happen. Yeah. And had and a lot of it had to do with these uh, this kind of paradigm that we've entered into where where a corporation like Facebook can have such an impact on the way that people get information. Um anyway, I I just think it's all really a fascinating discussion because it's kind of like when you know, when the nuclear bomb was dropped, we just sort of entered a new era of oh, this is possible now. You know, people can do this now. Okay, now we have to readjust our whole worldview to to incorporate that into how we do things. And I think the same thing is true for a lot of these technologies that are coming out of these large corporations. And and I don't really, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I almost feel like something maybe really tragic or horrible might, Ms. is obviously a bit pessimistic, but something 
it's oftentimes things don't change unless people see like, oh, this is possible now, mm-hmm. right? I didn't know that that drones could do this. Well, let's scale back this, or let's work on this, or right. Um, uh, and it's it's a bit uh, it's a bit disconcerting, is all. And another thing, I'm sorry, I'm just going on tangents. I'm just sort of throwing ideas out here, but you know, there's scientists that throw out these geoengineering ideas to help deal with. Um, uh, climate change, right? So global climate change. They're like, well, let's figure out a way to capture the carbon out of the atmosphere. Let's right. maybe spray some particulates in the atmosphere to reflect the sunlight. Or, you know, they have these really um, crazy schemes. And I think as the climate begins to change more and more and more, people are becoming very intimately uh, aware of the changes that are happening, that they might be more likely to jump on board to these ideas that like we were talking about earlier, these unintended consequences that might come out of that. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah, I, I just think a lot about it. And, and I just, I know that you comment uh, on this subject a great deal. So I just like to get your opinions on them. Yeah, yeah I mean, uh, you're, you're right to talk about unintended con- consequences, I think. Uh, we often allow people to talk about really big and complex problems as though they were simple. Uh, I'm currently teaching a class for first-year students here at uh, at my university, at Augustana University, uh, on how to begin to solve wicked problems in environmental policy. Uh, I think we've probably talked about this a little bit before, but I'll remind your listeners, wicked problems are not just – the word wicked there is, doesn't mean evil. It means mm. a problem that's so complex and has so many factors that uh, – you cannot propose a simple solution and expect the solution to follow in a linear fashion from the problem. Yeah. And whatever solution you propose will generate new problems. So sometimes you hear people, uh, presidential candidates, uh, will often talk about solving economic problems or uh, geopolitical problems. Uh, somebody will say, I want to bring peace to the Middle East and I have the solution. And in order to claim to have the solution, they have to oversimplify the problem. And say that uh, I am the only one who knows this answer. I can offer the solution and the solution will actually work. Uh, but they have to rule out the possibility of there being unintended consequences. And mm-hmm. I think what we need is an awful, uh, an awful lot more uh, humility about the scope of our ability to foresee what the consequences will be. You know, look, you can look back to, um, the early 1900s, uh, the population of the world was something in the ballpark of uh, one and a half, two million people. I'm sorry, one after two billion people. And uh, we had some difficulty with uh, making sure that cropland would consistently produce crops. We relied an awful lot on nature and uh, on rainfall and on the, the, uh, the soil itself to provide the nutrients. And we figured out thanks to some really brilliant scientific advances, how to fix nitrogen from the atmosphere and turn that into a solid that we could, we could amend the soil with, and we greatly increased the productivity of our croplands. Mm-hmm. For a little while, the upshot of this was a solution to world hunger. Right. In the long term, the consequence of this has been vastly increasing the population of the world. And this is a here's a good thing. It meant that children were not dying of starvation, which is a really that's good. Yeah. Um, The unintended consequence of that is that we had a habit of having a lot of children because we knew that many of them would die 
and the habit didn't go away. Uh, and so our population has rapidly increased. In my lifetime, the population of the world has almost doubled uh, and it continues to rise. Uh, and I'm not that old. Um, yeah. This is, uh, this is something of a wicked problem because it's not a bad thing for people to continue, continue to live. It's a very good thing. But when people continue to live, there are other consequences that come with that. And so it's not a simple problem of simply making sure that people have enough to eat. But you also have to make sure that people can depend upon one another and don't need to have enormous families. Uh, you have to figure out how do you educate people and provide meaningful work for people and places for people to live. As the population of the world increases, the amount of clean water per capita decreases. The amount of land space available per capita decreases. Again, these are not evil things in and of themselves, but they present new problems and they develop new problems. Right. Yeah, I think so. And um, yeah, then that relates again to what we were talking about at the beginning with the discovery of these uh, Mayan ruins. Mm -hmm. um, you could see that happen over and over and over again throughout human history. And um, there, there should be a lesson in there, right? And th I think that what's happened is that you can imagine that the Mayans were like, if you lived in an ancient Mayan society, you're like, this is the center of the universe. This is where everything I know and understand is. This is the world, okay? And then when that thing starts to fall apart, I imagine that's a very um, traumatic experience. But mm -hmm. but the, the civilization that we have now, it extends far beyond borders, right? The effects that our economic system is having on the atmosphere, on the climate, on everything is worldwide. It's, it's global at this point. So if there's ever been a time to kind of figure this stuff out, I think it's now, you know, and you know, we're talking about unintended consequences. It's interesting. I had a conversation recently with an environmental environmentalist activist, but he, he's working on a book and in it, he's sort of, uh, dispelling a lot of the myths, misconceptions, and deceptions around um, so-called sustainable energy, clean energy, because he's like, okay, so it's great that we're wanting to get away from fossil fuels, we're trying to use less carbon, um, but the the sustainable energy movement is is kind of using the same tools and the same things that that the fossil fuel industry is using. You know, they have to mine for these precious minerals. They have to, which of course toxicifies the um, local environment. Um, it, you, it needs fossil fuels in order to make uh, solar panels. You need fossil fuels to make wind energy. You need all of these things that were that have been used for the past hundred or two hundred years um, that has gotten it, us into this problem in the first place. But this stuff is being passed off as if it's this grand solution, which we were talking about—the oversimplification of of problems that are very complex um yeah. and i think that it's actually kind of a bit disheartening if you were to bring this up to somebody who is like okay we're, we're gonna start moving to we're gonna only have solar energy now we're only gonna have wind energy we're only gonna you do this and they're gonna feel good about it because moving away from that dirty coal or that dirty fossil fuel industry mm. Um, and then to realize that, in fact, it still has many problems and it's not actually moving us very far away from 
the uh, the problem in, in the in the first place. So, uh, how do you? I mean, not how do you deal with that, but it's more like something that I, I think about is is how how complex the problem really is, and it's like you could become debilitated in some way by the complexity of the problem, and it's really easy to look to other people who are very intelligent people, but who are doing what you're saying. They're oversimplifying the problem. And we just give the power over to them and say, just fix this for us. And that's, that's not going to work, you know, ultimately. Um, yeah. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah. And, and the, the bad news is I think that a lot of the work that lies ahead of us is, um, is tiring work. And part of mm. what makes it tiring is that it requires us to take other people seriously so when you hear somebody complaining about uh, – uh, when you hear somebody talking about coal mining, uh, one of the hard things to do is to remember that on both sides of that debate or on all the sides of the debate, if it's a multifaceted debate, there are people with uh, legitimate interests and people with good intentions who are trying to take care of the people that they love. They might mm -hmm. not be doing it the way that we would do it. They might even be doing things that we would consider to be reckless or um, or poorly designed. But, you know, if you're talking to somebody who is in West Virginia or in Kentucky and who's doing coal mining, you t if you talk about getting rid of coal, you've got to bear in mind that those people uh, might have a long family history of coal mining that might go back centuries that for them, that coal mining is meaningful work and that life without mm -hmm. meaningful work is, is a, is a, is drudgery. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and that you're talking about stripping away from them, not just their current income, but all of the ancestral knowledge and the cultural, uh, the cultural knowledge and everything else that's gone into making their community what it is. And that's not something to take lightly, even if, we recognize that burning coal is bad for the atmosphere, it, 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 as it pretty plainly is. Um, the more of it we burn, the worse off we are. And it's, a, it's something of limited supply. We can't keep burning it at the rate that we're burning it forever. We're going to run out. So we've got to come up with some sort right. of alternative. But simply to say that we need an alternative uh, and not to take seriously the people whose lives currently depend upon it and that are deeply rooted in, in those veins of coal, I think is... Um, is cruel and unkind. That means that when we try to solve these problems, we've got to do so in a way that um, that not only cares for a limited problem ourselves, you know, the, the, that as we conceive it, the, the, the problem of the environment, mm -hmm. we've got to take care of our neighbors as well and right. care for everything that goes into making their lives whole and meaningful. That's, yeah. that's hard work. Yeah. I was, uh, last year I talked to a his name is Stuart Pym. Um, he runs this organization called Saving Species, and he's all about preserving biodiversity. And he goes down to basically, yeah, South America, the Amazon forest, and um, it's being uh, deforested. He says one of the issues isn't that, sure, there are large swaths of forest that are, that are cut down, but what we have is a crisscrossing effect. So you have chunks of forest here and a chunk of forest over here and over here and it yep. you know people look at it like well there's still forest so who cares but it's like well the animals aren't connected anymore there's no like way there's an, it, it cuts everything up into these little pieces and 
it's really detrimental for the the local ecology. So right. he he what he does is he's like instead of bringing in a big NGO or some big organization that's like we have this big blanket organize this big plan that's going to take care of every problem for every community. He's like we're going to go to each individual community and work with them and figure out what their needs are. And figure out why this is happening in their community and then try to get that to stop and try yep. to rebuild these uh, uh, these forests and, and heal them. Um, and I really like that he that that made a lot of sense to me. Like that's exactly what gets the problems are very complex. But if you actually break them down um, and you think, OK, well, how is this affecting this community here? Then let's work on that. And that's the only way that we can really get through this, I think. Right. Yeah. Something that I've been thinking a lot about is um, actually, <clears throat> this isn't meant to be like self-promotion, but I actually was accepted to speak at a TEDx event um, here in Twin Falls. Hey, that's exciting. And yeah, yeah. And I've never done anything like this before. I've never done a, like, I think the last time that I spoke publicly was when I was a kid and I went to church and, you know, they give you an assignment. Okay. Talk about this thing. I'm like, okay. And I go up there for like 15 minutes. Right. Don't know what I'm doing, but I, you know, try my best. But for this, I actually volunteered to do it. And, and I want to basically talk about very simple theme, which is that everybody's aware that things are getting really weird right now. I think that, um, the amount of absurd, spectacular, devastating events is just increasing and we're seeing it happen in our country and we're seeing it internationally and it's really um disorienting and so what i'm asking people to do is that don't look away from it recognize it for what it is but also cultivate strong connections within your own community um and also you know we have the internet so we can cultivate connections Mm -hmm. over long distances but, you know, work on that because that's really what's going to save us, if anything, um, what's really going to provide uh, a means to work through the problems that are going to manifest in every community across the world, you know. Um, so I, I, that's kind of my whole thing. And, and and I'm not here to, like, make people feel good or, like, give them some inspirational thing. I just want to be like, this is what needs to be done because I think that people have become very disconnected from the land, and that includes myself. They become very disconnected from the skills that you need in order to thrive. Yeah. And um, so uh, I need to work on that personally, but I also just wanted to share that with, you know, for my, my talk, you know. Yeah. Um, my platform that I'm going to have for eight minutes. Um, so, yeah, and I, I just, I think that, that's my main my main focus for doing this podcast I think at this point is is to look in the face of what's happening but but work on not exactly solutions but work on ways to adapt to these preposterous situations that seem to be emerging you know? yeah I mean some of the problems I, I, uh, that we'll face in life we will not be able to solve uh, mm-hmm. and one of them for instance, uh, one obvious one that we don't like to talk about that much is death. We are going to die. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. and, and sometimes we spend so much time focused on that one that we fail to do precisely the thing that you're talking about, and that is to make connections. Uh, if you focus on trying to s- prevent your own death permanently, you'll fail and you'll waste a lot of other opportunities. 
if you recognize that you've got a finite number of years, um, that the end might come sooner or it might come later, then there's not much that you can do about that. There are certain precautions you can take and you can live prudently. But the most important thing is you've got time right now. Everyone alive today has 24 hours today mm-hmm. to do what you can do in 24 hours. And there's something very comforting about that uh, and in recognizing that I may not have complete autonomy. I'm, I may not be able to preserve my life forever, but there are certain things that I can do today to make connections with other people and to help to make their lives better. I think it's Robin Wall Kimmerer in her book, Braiding Sweetgrass, says, all flourishing is mutual. Mm. And I, I think that's right. It's If we hope to preserve our own lives and to flourish alone, um, we have a very shallow and small hope. But if we hope to flourish in such a way that other people and other animals and species will flourish as well, I think that that's a richer kind of experience. I could be wrong. I'm, you know, I'm speaking from my own heart, but I think that for me at any rate, that's a preferable one. I agree with you. And I think, I think that if there's a culture that, um, maybe cultivates that, then it's likely to probably exist for a very long time. And I, and I would say that our culture really doesn't encourage those traits, but you can see it in, in individuals like yourself and, um, and, and other people that are really trying to offer an alternative because it's kind of amazing thing. Uh, if you like say come across an author and you open their book for the first time and you read it, or it could be a movie, it could be a document, it could be any series of things, but it's really remarkable that that can shift your worldview completely. Mm-hmm. And so the world that once looked like, like, I don't know, I'm trying to think of an example here, but something that's been kind of bothering me lately is seeing people that I'm close to blame people. So there's this kind of common phrase that I hear all the time, like people suck or, yeah. or I hate, or I hate people yeah. or, you know, and I, I feel that way too. I mean, I'll be driving or I'll be out in the world and I'm like, man, people really do suck. <laughs> but then I have to remind myself, no, this is a system. There is a, there is a thing that is governing human behavior and those systems can change. Yeah. Um, there was that fantasy writer, Ursula Le Guin. Yeah. I hope I'm saying her name correctly, but she said, uh, I mean, it was a very political statement, but it's like, um, how did she say it? Can't imagine that capitalism will ever disappear. Oh God. I wish I, I'm really butchering this quote, which is like, you know, you can't imagine that capitalism would ever disappear, but that was the same thing for the right or the divine right of kings. I, I'm totally butchering that quote. Sure. But the idea is like, you can't imagine the world being any different than it is. You can't imagine people acting any differently than they are. But um, I think if you just do just a little bit of research and, you know, just look into other cultures and you can kind of see what's possible. You know, it, it's very possible for cultures and societies to exist that encourage the best in people. Mm-hmm and encourage people to live in balance with their local and local land, their local ecology, the, you know, to be in balance with the world that you're intrinsically a part of anyway. So, uh, I think that that needs to be cultivated and, and I hope that, I hope that we can hopefully figure that out Mm -hmm. in some part. And I think we are, 
I yeah. see it, you know. And and I think doing this podcast has forced me to reach out and find people like you and and others to that are promoting this idea, you know. Mm-hmm. Um it's a really encouraging thing. Yeah. I, I think yeah. that's a very encouraging perspective that you're that you're offering there too. Uh if if we focus on the fact that people really are the worst, uh and people are the worst, uh there's you know, there's no no disputing it. People are the worst people. Mm-hmm. Uh then uh, we can focus on something that's true, but that's not particularly hope giving. And on the other hand, if we focus on the fact that people are also the really best mm-hmm. people, um, people are people full of possibility. Every person you meet could become something really wonderful. They could do something really wonderful. They could grow. They could mm-hmm. inspire. They could create wonderful things. Um, that's also true. Uh, it's just as true as the first statement that people are the worst. Uh, yeah. But that latter statement that people are quite possibly the best, that's something that gives us hope and it gives us reason to treat other people as though they were the best. Mm-hmm. You yeah. know, you, you brought up earlier that uh, that I'm a professor of philosophy and classics, and yet here I am uh, traipsing off through the forest in the in the tropics and, uh, as you know, going off to uh, do research in uh, the wilderness in Alaska and uh, – and in other places. My reason for this is, uh, is that, well, first of all, these places matter to me, but second, the people around me matter to me. And I look at the tools that I have as a philosopher or philosophy professor and a, and a classicist as tools that I can use to help to, uh, to inspire hope and to, to bring about new ideas, new solutions to, to new problems. Mm-hmm. It's pretty cool when I walk into my classroom to think, as I'm meeting students at the beginning of a new semester, here I am at the beginning of a new semester this, uh, at Augustana, every student in my classroom might be somebody smarter than I am. Mm-hmm. Every one of them might have a perspective that I've never imagined. Uh, I could yeah. think of them as being people who every one of them could be the new Hitler. You know, any one of them could, <laughs> be, you know, could become a mass murderer. That's, yeah, it's possible that anyone there could do something awful. But I love looking at them and thinking, Every one of these students could go on to do things that I would never have even imagined possible. Beautiful things, life-giving things, hope-fostering things that never would have occurred to me to do. And my privilege is to spend time with them cultivating whatever seeds of good things might have already been planted in them. Yeah. And that might be entirely naive. I recognize that. I could be completely wrong and I might be... I might have the next, you know, terrible criminal sitting right there in my in, in front of me. I can't know that, though, and I'll do the best that I can to make sure that even if I do have somebody who is potentially a, a, a terrible person, that I will cultivate what's very best within them while they're in my care. Right. Well, it's also, I think, recognizing that it's a very old principle, you know, the golden rule, the idea of, you know, treat others as you would like to be treated. But I think even deeper than that, it's like, what is it like to be you? Yeah. What is it like? Even the most, I mean, it's really is kind of hard to put yourself in the position of say a mass murderer or somebody who has committed great uh, crimes against humanity or people. Mm-hmm. And it's even especially harder. It's especially harder when 
those people do something to you or to somebody you love and care about. Right. Um, and it takes a really radical level of forgiveness in order to even come close to forgiving somebody for that. Um, and you may not even be able to do that. And, and, you know, I'm not asking people to do that, but I think that part of cultivating connections isn't just about building a grassroots movement to, you know, do whatever to save the, the forests or to save local ecology. It's not just about that, but it's also recognizing that the things that you want to change, the people that are, let's say that you don't like ExxonMobil and you want them to stop drilling and the, uh, wherever they're drilling and you want them to stop polluting the environment and making the planet, uh, a worse off place. You also have to recognize that those people that are making those decisions within their particular worldview, they're making a completely rational decision that makes a lot of sense to them. And what needs to be recognized instead of hating people and hating their actions, which of course you can hate, but recognizing that they are within, I remember there was a, when, when the uh, uh, Dakota access pipeline was, you know, they were trying to build that. And I guess they did build, I'm not sure exactly where that is right now, but there were those, uh, the indigenous communities in that area were standing up and saying, no, we won't let you build this here. Yeah. Um, and when there was that scene where they were, and this was the middle of, uh, you know, the winter, uh, the police were shooting these uh, water cannons at them, you know, freezing water. Yeah. And there were police that were in that, in that moment, I think that that didn't do it. They refused to do it because they saw what was happening, but it almost takes something like that to shake people out of their, their, their rationalizations that they might have for why they're doing what they're doing. And that doesn't always happen. Of course. I mean, yeah. I've seen it over and over again, but, um, I think it's recognizing that it's the systems that are in place that need to be changed and the, maybe the only, I don't know what the, the way to change it, it really is, but I know that one of the ways you can do that is to create an alternative story, an alternative system and an alternative way of looking at the situations that we're currently in. And you have to do that from the ground up, I think, mm-hmm. you know, and what you're doing with your students is, is sort of cultivating that critical thinking and empathy that they need in order to go out into the world and maybe question those those things that they come across that they feel are to be wrong, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've, yeah. I've never had to, uh, to work as a police officer or, and I've, I've never done military service. So I can't pretend to imagine what it's like to have to make the sorts of decisions that those people, uh, who do those jobs do make. But I, I'm often mindful of, um, what jo- the American philosopher Josiah Wright Royce wrote about, uh, in his philosophy of loyalty. And that is, he was looking back on the American civil war and speaking with veterans of that war and said that one thing that was common on both sides is that soldiers, whether from the North or the South, when they had witnessed acts of loyalty on the other side, you know, for instance, if they looked at, across the battle lines and saw one of their enemy soldiers risking his life to save a comrade, it was hard not to admire that, even while regarding that person as being an enemy, perhaps it was hard not to regard that loyalty positively. Mm-hmm. And again, yeah. that's just that's hard work for us uh, to uh, to to resist demonizing the people we disagree with. Mm-hmm. But yeah, all the people that we encounter are people who are going to have mixed motives. And if we're honest 
we're people who have mixed motives too. We do some good and we do some bad. Mm -hmm. I would love to to have clean energy, but I will drive myself home in a fossil fuel burning car at the end of this conversation. Yeah. Well, I drove my car today too. Same thing. You know, I I advocate for certain things, but it's hard to be a hundred percent consistent all the time. I don't know. Um, yeah, I, it's, it's like the same problems that you see in the culture that you want to change, you know, those are within ourselves as well. And that should help generate some empathy, I hope, right. because you're, we're all kind of trapped in the same, not trapped necessarily, but we're all a part of the same thing. So, um, mm-hmm. I, I, yeah, just that sort of, that needs to be recognized. Yeah. Yeah. Well, David, um, Thank you for taking some time to do this. I, I don't know if you're busy right now, but I, I appreciate you just taking an hour to talk with me because I'm always looking for an excuse to to talk with you. I always, you know, th- there's a few people on Facebook that I had, uh, that I love to follow just because they do enrich my experience. Most of the time, it's just a bunch of nonsense, but you're one of those people. So I, I would understand if you wanted to leave Facebook behind, but um, I personally benefit from you being on there. <laughs> well, I would say so, and, and it's mutual. I I, um, I am tempted sometimes to leave it, but uh, what I've been trying to do more than anything is foster connections with with you and with other people who are trying to do good things with uh, the social media. Uh, yeah. If I, I, if I can leave you with a couple of uh, uh, thoughts that might provoke a future conversation – I, mm-hmm. I know that Twitter, for instance, is something that makes uh, a lot of people angry and it becomes a place for the venting of much political spleen. But I found it to be a great place to connect with other people who are doing work in fields that I don't participate in. Um, and I can learn about their work through their what they publish there. Uh, and, you know, if I can bring it back to philosophy and classics, just really briefly at the beginning, yeah. you brought this up. Um, I'm reminded of the trial of Socrates. Uh, Plato records it in his, uh, his dialogue, the apology of Socrates. And one of the things that was, uh, that one of the accusations that was brought against Socrates was that, uh, he was like Daedalus. And as you'll recall from mythology, Daedalus was somebody who made machines that could move around all on their own. Mm. So this question of, uh, autonomous machines of robots that, maybe make decisions that we wouldn't make um, has frightened people for a really long time. And some of the problems that we face today, whether we're talking about robotics and ethics or whether we're talking about uh, environmental conservation or the population of new planets, I think that there are tools uh, at our disposal in ancient stories and in modern fiction, like you were mentioning, Ursula, again, there's still a lot out there. Uh, that we have yet to explore and spending time in conversation with people like you reading great books uh, and uh, sharing what we know with one another through podcasts and through Facebook and elsewhere. Uh, I think this is something that can help us to live better lives and more hopeful ones too. So thanks for what you do. Yeah. Well, thank you. I I appreciate it. And I thank you for what you're doing as well. And, um, you know, I, I feel a bit envious of your students. I think that uh, they, they have a, they have in they have you who gives them good insight and I think there have been a few teachers that I've had um, in high school and in a few college classes that I've taken that have really opened me up and and I think that's a really beautiful thing and something that I don't get enough of sometimes and I think people um, 
I remember there were certain classes that I was in and I would see people come in and they were just like, I just want to get through this thing. But because of how the teacher was articulating certain ideas, it really opened them up and really activated them. And it's really quite a remarkable thing that somebody's thoughts and their voice can be compelling enough to get people out of their uh, kind of reevaluate their own belief systems, mm-hmm. which is imp- which is really important, especially now. Um, so yeah, I I thank you for doing what you do, and I thank you for taking the time to do this. And you mentioned Twitter. I'm gonna I'll put a link to the peop- uh, put excuse me <laughs> I'll put a link to your Twitter account in the description because I think people should follow you on Twitter, and um, I follow you on Twitter, and I love it. So yeah. I, I think you, yeah, you do a lot of good work on there. So, um, yeah, David, thank you again. I really appreciate the time that we've had. Well, thank you, Patrick. It's always a delight talking to you. I'll look forward to the next time. Thank you for listening to Last Born in the Wilderness. Have a wonderful week. And as a psychedelic bard, Terrence McKenna said, take it easy, dude, but take it. <laughs>